Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're in a new series on the parables of Yeshua. Uh, probably the two most famous parables of all his parables are the what we did last week, which was the uh, uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, and, and what we have this week, which is the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, although today I'm going to slightly rename this parable which, into what I think is a more accurate uh, title. I'm calling it, as you see on the overhead, the parable of the prodigal sons, plural. And you'll quickly see why. So turn with me, uh, and it's be in the overhead as well, but here your scripture, turn with me to Luke 15. Uh, we're going to look at the first two verses for the intro and then drop down to verse 11 for the actual parable. So Luke 15, uh, beginning in verse 1 and then dropping down to verse 11. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Yeshua. But the Pharisees and the Torah teachers muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Yeshua continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had uh, and set off for a far country. And there he squandered all his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the land, in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach even with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father, say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come home, uh, he replied. And your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you've never given me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered all your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead, and is alive again, was lost, and is found. This is a story told in two acts. We'll put this on the overhead. Act 1, the lost younger brother. Act 2, the lost elder brother. Act 1 begins with a younger son saying, Luke 15, verse 12, Father, put that on the overhead as well, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, 
the original hearers, the first century Israeli Jews who would have heard this, would have been absolutely astounded at this request. Uh, because if you had two sons, you know, when you died, the older one would get a double portion. And so if you only had two sons, when the state was divided, two, uh, two-thirds went to the older and one-third would go to the younger. But this only happened when the father died. So when the younger son comes and asks his father for his share of the estate now, in essence, what he's actually saying, what he would have been saying in this culture is, I wish you were dead. The younger son is saying, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I want the father's things, but I don't want the father. My relationship with you, it's just a means to an end. And I'm frankly tired of it. I want my stuff and I want it now. Unheard of. But even more unheard of is where the father agrees and gives it to him. Gives him his share of the inheritance. Because a traditional Middle Eastern father could have been expected to respond in only one way. To drive the boy out of the house with verbal, if not also physical and violent blows. But this father doesn't do that. At great personal and social cost to himself, he liquidates a third of his property and gives it to his younger son. Now, interestingly, look at the translation in the Greek here in verse 12. It says the word property. It actually doesn't say property. Actually, the Greek word is bios. It means life, uh, from which we get our word biology. Uh, So the text really says that the father divided his life between them. Now, why would Yeshua put it this way in the parable? Well, we don't understand the relationship that people in the past had to their land. This father's estate consisted mainly of his land. His wealth was in his land. His wealth was his land, and the land got passed down generation to generation. Now, he would have had to sell off a third of all his land to give it to the younger son, which was unheard of. If you want to try to understand now the the traditional mindset about one's land, just remember the famous musical Oklahoma. We put that house in the overhead, right? How how, how does the famous uh, theme song go? Oh, we know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. Right. (laughs) Notice the words here in this famous song, the land that we belong to. It doesn't say the land belongs to us, but that we belong to the land. Ancient peoples identified with their land. Their very identity is bound up in their land. So to lose your land was to lose yourself. And to lose part of your land was to lose your standing in the community. So this son is asking his father to tear his life apart. To tear apart his standing in the community. And the father does it. Yeshua's first century Middle Eastern audience had never seen a family patriarch respond to an insult in this way. This father is enduring the worst thing a human can endure. Rejected love. And the son drives home the point that he cares nothing for his father, but only wants the father's things, because the very first thing he does, what is the very first thing he does when he actually gets the money? He immediately takes off. And he leaves his father's home. And he goes to what's called a far country, where nobody knows him. So he can do whatever he wants, and there's no one there to see it and report back to his family. The son totally dishonors his father. But it says instead of retaliating and withdrawing uh, so as not to be vulnerable, not to be hurt, the father maintains his love for his son, uh, even here, and endures the agony of rejected love. So the son goes off, squanders everything he has on prostitutes and partying and and wild living. And when he's literally uh, down in the mud, uh, down in the pigsty, he realizes, oh, what an idiot I've been. He comes up with this plan. He'll go home, confess to his father I've sinned, ask him to be made like one of the hired hands uh, to work for his bread. Now, to be be like a hired servant isn't exactly the same thing as being a slave. Uh, A slave would have lived and worked on the estate. But a hired man was was a craftsman who lived in town and was apprenticed to to learn a skill uh, and and earned a wage. 
So if you had uh, violated the, the community's norms, the only way back into the community was to make restitution. So the son's coming back with this plan to earn his own redemption, so to speak. He's saying, Father, if you'll apprentice me to one of your hired men, teach me a craft. I know I can't be your son. I know I can't any longer be part of the family. But this way I can at least begin to pay you back. Uh, Pay you back for all I've taken, for all I've made you suffer. So the son has a plan. But as he's returning, the father, who's been on the lookout for his son day and night, sees him afar off. And he takes off from the front porch and runs to his son. Now you have to understand, Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. Children ran, youth ran, women ran. Not fathers, not owners of estates. Because you had to pick up your robes and bare your legs, and and older men didn't do that. But this one does. In order to reach out to his long-lost son in love, and avoid his son's embarrassment, avoid the son's embarrassment, the father risks his own embarrassment and shame and ridicule. He runs to his son. He shows absolute emotional abandonment and kisses him. And the son now tries to roll out his, his little prepared speech, gets out his PowerPoint slides, starts his presentation on how he's going to make restitution. But the father will have none of it, doesn't even want to hear it. Instead, the father says this to his servants, Luke 15, 22, get the best robe and put it on him. Of course, the best robe would have been the father's own robe. The father, in essence, is saying, I'm not going to wait for you to clean up. I'm not even going to wait for you to take a bath uh, or to prove yourself uh, or to earn your keep. Instead, he tells his servants, cover up my son's nakedness. Cover his nakedness and his rags with the robes of my office and my honor. Luke 15, 23 says this. And prepare a feast. Let's celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father says to the son, I'm not going to make you earn your way back into the family. I'm bringing you back. Now, when the older brother hears about this, he is furious. Luke 15, 28. The older brother becomes angry, refuses to go in. He's upset about the father welcoming back his younger son, about the cost involved with this big party. And the older, mother, the older brother makes a big deal about the father killing this fattened calf. He complains to his father in Luke 15, 29. He complains, you never even gave me a young goat. Uh, But when this son of yours, of course, you won't call him my brother, right? This son of yours, uh, who squandered his wealth with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You know, in the ancient Middle East, the average person almost never ate meat. Uh, It was expensive. It was a delicacy. It was for special occasions. And the greatest delicacy and the most expensive meal was to slay a fattened calf. The whole village would have been invited. Most families would never do this just as a private party. It was a community affair, like a wedding. And the older brother is saying to the father, how dare you use your wealth, our wealth, uh, like this? I've obeyed you. Uh, the rest of the estate is ultimately mine. Uh, I should have some say-so in what's going on here. I should have some right over your things. And he rebukes and insults and disrespects his father. In fact, look at verse 29. He doesn't even say father. He says to him, look. Look, you. Look at verse 15, 29. Luke 15, 29. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Now, in the Middle East, this is a deliberate insult. It would have been shocking to Yeshua's hearers. And then the older brother publicly humiliates his father by refusing to go in to the greatest feast his father's ever thrown. Humiliates him by making his father come out to him. And then further humiliates him by refusing to even call him father. Now what does the father do? He responds with a very tender word. He says, my son. Literally in the Greek, it's my child. 
a term of endearment. My son, I still want you in the feast. Most other fathers would have, would have disowned this son by now of what he just done. But this father says, I still want you in. And as now we're on the edge of our seats, waiting to see if the older brother will in fact join the feast, the parable ends. Now, what does Yeshua tell us in this very famous parable? Three things, I believe. I'm going to put on the overhead. What Yeshua is do- Radical things Yeshua is doing here. Three radical things. Number one, he's redefining sin. Number two, he, he's redefining... I'm sorry. Number one, he's redefining God. Number two, he's redefining sin. And number three, he's redefining salvation. So first, he, he redefines who God is. You know, there's many people who've had bad fathers or, or even non-existent fathers, absentee fathers... Uh, so they struggle with this whole idea of, of God as a father. But Yeshua, more than anyone in history, always called God his father. Uh, he's the first person really ever to address God as father. And every single time in the Bible that he addresses God except once, he always calls him father. And the whole idea of God as father in the Hebrew scriptures was very rare. But Yeshua uses it extensively. Here, and here he describes what he means by father. You know, secular people today, they complain, I don't like this idea of God as father. Uh, it's patriarchal. Fathers are, are hard and harsh and condemning and judgmental. Uh, they impose strict rules and regulations on you. Uh, but what I want today, they say, I want a loving God, an accepting God, a compassionate God, a sensitive God, a caring God, a forgiving God. A God who longs for reconciliation and relationship. But do you know what Yeshua is saying here in this parable? Yeshua gives us a father unlike any other father of that time. See his emotional abandon, his generosity, his willingness to endure the agony of rejected love. Yeshua is saying, I'm sorry if you had a bad father, but my father is not like that. For all of his holiness and his power and his majesty, he's also all the other things, too, that you say you want. He's loving. He's long-suffering. He's longing for your love. He loves you. And Yeshua brings together traits and attributes of God that had never been brought together before. Yeshua is painting God with both meekness and majesty, with both power and tenderness. Yeshua is saying, that's who my Father is. And no one has ever described God in those terms before. Yeshua redefines God. Number two, he redefines sin. You know, in Act 1 of the parable concerning the younger brother, Yeshua gives us a very traditional picture of sin. Any religious person would have looked at this and said, yes, that's what sin is. Prostitutes, wild living, partying, uh, insulting his father, pigsty, down in the gutter, dissolute, self-indulgent. That's sin. Sins of the flesh. But then in Act 2, you know, concerning the older brother, Yeshua turns the tables. And we see here what I'm going to call sins of the spirit, which we have on the overhead. Pride and arrogance, self-righteousness. Judgmentalism, superiority, legalism and, and religious spirit, resentment and bitterness. And so at the end of the parable, we're left with two sons. On the surface, one son is very, very good, and one is very, very bad. But they're both alienated from the father. They both want the father's things, but not the father. They both use the father to get what they really love. They don't love the Father. They use the Father to get what they really love. Pleasure, wealth, status, approval. They're real loves. But one of them ran after his real loves by being very, very uh, bad. And one of them ran after his, his real loves by being very, very good. But here's the point. They're both lost. The bad one is lost in his badness. But the good one is lost in his goodness. And in the end, interestingly, it's the bad one who's saved and the good one who's lost. 
The lover of prostitutes is saved, and the man of moral rectitude is lost. Who ever told a parable like this before? And it gets worse. Because when you see why the good son, why the elder son was lost, he wasn't lost despite his goodness. He was lost because of it. In fact, he even says this himself. He says, here's the reason why I won't go into the feast of the father. Here's the reason why I reject you, father. It's because I've never disobeyed you. I've never disobeyed you, and so you owe me. I've earned my inheritance, and I resent not getting my due. While this good-for-nothing son of yours gets a party. I'm the good one. How dare you honor him and not me? It's not his sins keeping the older son from the father, but his goodness. His reliance on his own efforts and merits to earn, in his mind, be entitled to, in his mind, the father's love and approval and benefits. The older son is proud of his goodness. In his mind, his goodness puts the father in his debt. His father owes him. It's not his sins keeping him from the father, but his righteousness. Or should I say, self-righteousness. Don't forget who Yeshua is speaking this whole parable to. In Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, we began on this with a purpose. Uh, because he tells us that there were two groups that were gathered around Yeshua. Tax collectors and sinners in, in one group. And Pharisees and Torah teachers uh, in group two. And now we see who they are in the parable. The sinners are the younger brother. The Pharisees are the older brother. So what we have here are two basic ways that human beings try to make the world right, make themselves right, and to connect to God. Uh, moral conformity and what I'm calling self-discovery. Moral conformity, the older brother. Self-discovery, the, young, the younger brother. In moral conformity, people will say, I'm not going to give in to the, the lusts of the flesh. I'm going to comply with the moral law of God. I'm going to submit. I'm going to be good. I'm going to work hard. In contrast, in self-discovery, it's all about the self. It's all about me. I'm going to go out and do whatever I want and discover myself. I'm going to do whatever I, whatever I think is right for me, according to my own individual, internal, subjective standards. I'm going to do what I want to do and live the way I want to live. And I'm going to find my true self to thy own true self, own self be true. Now, each side says, this is the way the world should live. This is the key to happiness. This is how you, this is how you reach the divine. And Yeshua says, you're both wrong. Both are wrong. You're lost in different ways, but you're both lost. Older brothers divide the world into two basic groups. They say there's the good moral people, like me, uh, and then there's the bad, evil, sinful people, like the younger brother. And the, and the, good, people, the good ones, like me, are in, and the bad ones, like the younger brother, are out. And the younger brothers do the same thing, but in very different ways. The younger brothers say, the open-minded, tolerant, progressive people, like me, are in, and the bigoted, self-righteous, judgmental people like the older brother are out. And Yeshua says, neither of you are in. You're both out. He says, it's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. He says, the people who know that they're not good or not open-minded, who, who fall upon God for their mercy and for his mercy and grace, who are in, and it's the smug, self-centered people who think they're on the right side of the great divide who are out. The gospel of Yeshua is neither religion nor irreligion. It's neither morality nor immorality. It's neither moralism nor relativism. It's a totally different animal, a totally different category altogether. And now we see what Yeshua is saying about sin, how he's redefining sin. He's saying there are two different ways to sin. Two ways to try to be your own Savior and Lord. 
Just like there were two different ways to try to get control of the father's stuff. One son tried to get control of his father's stuff, not loving the father, but using him to get what he wanted by being living a very, very bad life. But the other son tries to control the father and control his stuff by outwardly, by externally living a very, very good life. And so there's two ways to try to be your own Savior and Lord. There's two different ways to try to control God, to put yourself in control, to control your own life. One way is to go off into the far country, away from your family's influence, and live any way you want. The other way is to stay home, dutifully attend church or synagogue every week, and outwardly live a very moral, religious life. Obey the Ten Commandments, and subconsciously believe that God now owes you. You can control him and get him to answer your prayers now. Indeed, there's a great uh, character in one of uh, Flannery O'Connell's novel. Uh, it's described like this. It's uh, called Wise Blood is the name of this book by Flannery O'Connor. And he says this, There was a dark, nameless understanding within him that the way to avoid Yeshua was to avoid sin. That's the subconscious essence of the older brother spirit, uh, the pharisaic spirit. Uh, the mindset that says, if I'm good, if I read my Bible and pray my prayers, then God has to bless me. He has to answer my prayers. For this person, Yeshua, maybe he's your rewarder, maybe he's your example, but he's not your savior. You are suddenly trying to be your own savior, relying on your goodness instead of relying on God. And you're subconsciously using your outward morality to get God to give you what you really want, which is this or that blessing or answer to prayer, instead of simply wanting God and wanting nothing but God himself. Religious people obey God to get things. Yeshua followers obey God to get God. To express their love for God. To delight Him. To become more like Him. To draw closer to Him. To more fully know Him. As a heartfelt overflow of their deep and abiding love for Him. Elder brother lostness and younger brother lostness are both terrible. The younger brother lostness is steeped in self-indulgence and addiction and, and impurity and profligate license and licentiousness. Elder brother lostness is characterized often by anger and resentment, pride, self-righteousness, superiority, judgmentalism. Why is the older brother so angry? Because in his mind he's lived such a good life that God now owes him to give him what he wants. Which is not the father, but the father's things. A, a calf, a goat, a, a good life, prosperity, blessing. But the point is, both brothers are lost. Neither one wants the father. They each just want his things. And because almost no one's life ever goes exactly the way you want it to, if this is your mindset you will always be angry. You'll be angry, and you'll be an angry, bitter, resentful, miserable person. Just like, this, just like this elder brother is, who refuses to go into the feast. So ask yourself, why do I obey God? Why do I obey him? What's my motivation? The older brother does not obey out of love. Look how disrespectfully he treats and talks down to his father. He obeys outwardly, yes, but his heart is cold. He obeys not out of love, but to get stuff. And in the end, the younger son is saved, and the older one remains lost. Don't miss this. The bad son repents and gets saved, while the religious son remains lost. Now, because we are, for the most part, here in this room, uh, religious people, I want to take a bit more time now on, on this older brother. Because the younger son, with his more obvious sins, he, he at least knows that he's lost. 
But the older brother is in far more danger because he thinks he's fine. The problem with, with older brothers, with religious people, who dutifully attend shul every week, is that they don't know that they're lost. And in fact, they would be very offended if you ever suggested to them that they were far from God. Because that's not as obvious. Younger brother lostness is much more obvious. If you wake up one day in a pigsty with this big hangover, you've lost all your money partying and gambling, you've got a sexually transmitted disease, and you're you're bearing all the fruit of being lost. (laughs) But what are the signs of elder brother lostness? Not as obvious. It's much more subtle because younger brothers are out at the bar, they're out at the nightclub. Where, where, Where are the older brothers? The older brothers are right here at shul. And they're obeying the Ten Commandments. And at least, at least in their own mind, they're obeying it. Uh, they're outwardly being very, very good. Uh, they're praying and reading their Bible, confessing that I believe in Yeshua. So how do you know if you're an elder brother? Well, the text here gives us three signs. Uh, in verses 28 to 30, three signs of, of elder brother lostness. First, uh, elder brothers have an undercurrent of anger in their lives. Look at Luke 15, verse 28. Luke 15, 28. Older brother, he becomes angry and refuses to go in. Why? Look at verse 29 now. Do you want to put this on the overhead here? 28 and then 29. Why? Why does he refuse to go in? Because I've never disobeyed you. Did you catch that? Now there, right there, reveals the heart of an elder brother type. If you believe that because of your goodness and your decency that God owes you a good life, you will always be angry. Because like I said, for 99% of us, 99% of the human race, your life never goes completely the way you want it to go. And if this is you, you're going to go through life angry and never content. Because in your mind you say, Lord, I've been so good. I've worked so hard. I've never disobeyed you. Like the older brother says, So why isn't my life going any better? And by the way, Lord, why is this other person over here who doesn't live for you? Why are they doing so well? What's the matter with you, God? You've never even given me a goat. Well, this profligate profligate ne'er-do-well, worthless son of yours, he gets the fatted calf. It's not fair. It's not right. By the way, the same attitude Salieri had uh, about Mozart, which eventually drove Salieri mad. So number one, elder brothers are constantly angry. Easily lose their tempers, easily explode without warning. There's an undercurrent of anger in their life. Number two, put this on the overhead. The second mark of an elder brother lostness is what I'm going to call duty without beauty. Notice the elder brother says to his father, Luke 15, 29, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Notice the irony here. The younger son comes back, Luke 15, verse 19. says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants, like one of your slaves. But when the younger brother offers to be, to be made a slave, the father makes him a son. But now here's the older brother who thinks he's a son, but because of his spiritual condition, is actually a slave. When he says, all these years I've been slaving for you, what he means is, I've been obeying you, but it's been all grind. The elder brothers, they obey. Elder brothers pray. Elder brothers do all the right things, but it's a grind for them. There's no joy in it at all. You know, back in the dark ages when I was in college, (laughs) I took a course from EZA called Music Appreciation. And as part of this course, I had to listen to a lot of Mozart uh, to be able to identify music on the test, uh, identify his music in particular, in order to get an A, so I could get a good grade point average, so I could get into a good law school, so I could get a good job. So I listened to Mozart in order to make money. <laughs> but now I happily spend lots of money to listen to Mozart. <laughs> Why? Because while listening to Mozart originally for me was a duty... Now it's a beauty. I listen to Mozart 
only for the sheer joy of it. Because it's an intrinsic beauty in and of itself. Let me put this on the overhead here. Elder brothers find God useful, but not beautiful. Gospel-believing, born-again Yeshua followers find God beautiful in and of himself. For no other end. He is the ultimate end. I don't listen to Mozart so people think I'm cultured or to impress anyone or, or to make money. I listen to Mozart as an end in itself. For the sheer beauty of it. Not as a means to some other end. Older brothers are obedient and faithful and diligent and religious, but it's totally results-oriented, and therefore it's a grind. Let me put this on the overhead. They obey to get things from God, older brothers, but gospel-believing Yeshua followers obey just to get God. Older brothers, they confess their sins, they pray, they petition God, but they almost never do sheer adoration and worship. They don't spend much time just at his feet, contemplating God, adoring God, enjoying God. Because for them, prayer is a means to an end. It's a religious duty. Uh, I do it to get things, to get my things on my list, right? But it's not a beauty. It's not something I do simply to draw near to God and delight in God. Older brothers complain, I obey, I slave for the Father, but what am I getting out of it? Uh, not even a goat to enjoy with my friends. But look at Yeshua. He was completely faithful to God. What did he get out of it? Betrayal, arrest, torture, mocking, crucifixion, death. So why should we feel entitled to some costs, to some soft, uh, cushy life? Are we better than our master? When we see what Yeshua has done for us, a true Yeshua follower says, I want to obey just to delight you, God, just to please you and to honor you and to enjoy your presence and become more like you. Not in order to get things. For elder brothers, though, it's all duty and no beauty. And then number three, right in the overhead, third mark of elder brother lostness is religious and cultural and class superiority. Why won't the elder brother come into the feast? Look at Luke 15, verse 30. This son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, if you ground your self-image and your value in your performance, if that's how you justify yourself, then you will resent and disdain anyone who doesn't measure up to your standards. So, for example, if you ground your self-image and your value in being a hard-working person, then you have to look down your nose and feel superior to those who you perceive as being lazy. If you base your self-worth uh, and your sense of success uh, and righteousness on being successful then you're going to have to look down your nose at those you see as failures. So how does this elder brother look at the younger brother? Well, first, the younger brother, he's poor. He's penniless. Second, he's not even the deserving poor. He, he, he got himself into this mess. And third, he's immoral with prostitutes. So the elder brother wants nothing to do with him. And that's because he doesn't understand that salvation is only by grace. He's filled with works righteousness. He bases God's acceptance of him on his own merits. And that always leads to a sense of religious and cultural and class superiority. So ask yourself, when I look at people of different races or different classes or different religions, do I feel superior to them? If so, that's a sign you may be an elder brother. These are some of the signs of elder brother lostness and how Yeshua redefines sin. Now, how can we change our heart's motivations so that when we obey God, we do it not as a slave out of duty, mechanically, joylessly, but out of love and, and gratitude and beauty? That brings us to the final point, point three. Yeshua redefines salvation. 
He doesn't just, number one, redefine sin and redefine God and redefine sin, but number three, he redefines salvation. Because the gospel, Yeshua faith, does not divide the world into the good and the bad people, but into the proud and the humble people. Look, put this on the overhead, please. The default mode of every human heart, whether moral or immoral, whether religious or irreligious, the default mode of every human heart is self-justification. Being your own Savior and Lord. Trying to control God in your own way. But neither the younger brother's self-discovery nor the older brother's moral conformity goes deep enough to get at what's really wrong with the human heart. So how can we be saved? Yeshua says we need three things. We'll put it on the overhead. Number one, we need the initiating love of the Father. Do you notice in this parable the Father always takes the initiative? He goes out to both sons in order to bring them in. He goes out to both sons. He first goes out to the younger son and kisses him before the younger son even repents. The repentance does not trigger the kiss. The kiss facilitates the repentance. You only seek God because he first seeks you. And he's seeking some of you in this room right now. You can sense it in your spirit. How will you respond? Will you say yes to Yeshua and surrender to him? And notice the father goes out even to the older brother as well. And this is amazing because Yeshua, if you remember, is telling this story to the Pharisees, to the religious people, the very ones he knows are going to kill him. They were offended at him because the gospel is every bit as offensive to moral and religious people as it is to immoral and irreligious people. Every bit as offensive. And yet, in this parable, Yeshua has the father going out and pleading with the elder brother, pleading with the Pharisees to come in. Yeshua goes out to all. It's amazing. He wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance and faith and trust in him. So, number one, we need the initiating love of the father. Uh, Number two, and the overhead as well, we also need to learn how to repent for more than just our sins, for more than just our specific sins. The younger brother comes back as a whole list of sins to repent of, right? And we think, yes, that's what you do. That's how you get right with God. You repent of your list. But do you see how, how, do you see how radical this parable is? The older brother is lost, but there's nothing on his list. He says, I've always obeyed you. So how does a person who's lost with no sins on his list get saved? And of course, there's no such thing as a person without sin. But here's the point. When Pharisees sin, when Pharisees sin they repent. But when, you, when, they're, when they're done repenting, they're still Pharisees. The difference between a Yeshua follower and a moralist is this. Yeshua followers also repent of what they do wrong, but in addition, they repent for the reasons that they do right. For the self-centered, self-justifying reasons for why they did right. Yeshua followers repent when they do wrong, but they recognize the reasons for even the right things that they do is often self-justification and the desire to control God and to control others. And when that penny drops in your heart, when you begin to see your your desire to be your own Savior and your own Lord, that are only about the bad things you've done, but also also with respect to the good things. When When you say, that's got to change in my heart, when that epiphany happens, everything changes. Everything in your life changes. The way you handle criticism changes. The way you see people who are different from you changes. The way you live, the way you relate to others, the way you relate to God. Everything changes. It's called the new birth. Have you experienced that? Do you know how to repent both for your bad deeds 
and also your, your improper self-centered motives for your good deeds. Have you done that? So the first thing you need is the initiating love of God. Secondly, you need to learn how to repent from more than just your specific list of sins. And number three, you need to be melted and moved by what it costs to bring you home. The key difference between a Yeshua follower and a Pharisee is motivation. Pharisees always obey God to get things. Yeshua followers obey God to get God. Because something that the Yeshua follower has seen has melted his heart toward God. And he loves the Father, finally. Because he's seen what it's cost to bring him home. Look at the hint at the very end of the parable uh, of the cost involved. The Father is talking to the elder son, Luke 15, verse 31. And he says, my son, the father says, everything I have is yours. The younger brother, by the way, had already received his inheritance, right? So everything left in the father's estate now belongs to the older brother. Every robe, every ring, every fatted calf, it all belongs on one level to the older brother. So the younger brother can only be brought back into the family And the enormous cost and expense to the older brother. Bringing the younger son home was not free. It's not costless to be saved. Someone has to pay. Here in this parable, the elder brother has to pay. And he's furious about it. Now why does Yeshua put such a nasty older brother in this story? Because he's trying to show the Pharisees what they look like. This whole parable is addressed to them. But what would a true older brother have done? A true elder brother would have seen the agony of the father and said, Father, I'm going to go out. I'm going to look for this long-lost brother, this long-lost son. And if he's ruined himself and squandered his inheritance, I'm going to bring him home. Even at my own expense. That would have been... A true elder brother. Now this prodigal younger son in the parable, he doesn't have a true elder brother. But we do. Yeshua here uh, shows us uh, a bad older brother so that we will long for the right one. We don't just need an elder brother from the next town over to go out and find us. We need someone to come from heaven to earth. We don't need someone to bring us into God's family just at the cost of his wallet. We need someone who will bring us in at the cost of his life. Because on the cross, Yeshua was stripped naked so that you can be clothed in robes of honor. Robes of honor you do not deserve and I don't deserve. On the cross, Yeshua calls out, My God, my God. It's the only time in all the Gospels where he doesn't call him Father. Because at that moment, he wasn't being treated as a son, so that you and I could be. There he paid the debt that deep down we know we owe. He had everything the Father had, but he shares it with us, and he brings us home at enormous cost to himself. And when you see that, and to the degree that you see that, it'll change your heart motivation. It will change your whole approach to God. And you won't be living wildly under the guise of self-discovery or, or mere outward moral conformity and legalism and a religious spirit. You will be a true Yeshua follower. Now, some of you might be younger brothers, especially when you're not around anyone who knows you. Some of you might be older brother types who are, are into religion and, and legalism and superiority, and moralism, and judgmentalism, and self-righteousness. But a true Yeshua follower is neither. In fact, it's not, true true Yeshua faith is not a religion at all, in the classical sense, but it's a vibrant, intimate relationship with the very God who made you, and who wants you to know him, and to live for him, and be with him forever. God is the perfect father. This is the love you need. 
and deep down, the love you want. This parable is especially being told to elder brothers. Remember, Yeshua was addressing it to the Pharisees. So look in the mirror. Is there an undercurrent of anger in your life, of resentment and bitterness within you? If it is, repent and turn to Yeshua, the lover of your soul. See what he did for you and let it melt your heart. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. I want the music team to come on up, please. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you that you are the true Father. You are the perfect Father. You are, love, you, are, you are loving and just. You are holy and merciful. You are both transcendent and all-powerful, and yet one who tenderly draws near to us. Thank you, Lord Yeshua, for being the initiating lover. The one who takes the initiative, who takes the first step, even when we're your enemies. You pursue us, you wait for us, you run after us, you plead with us, you never give up on us. Forgive us for our younger brother failures, uh, for for indulging in in lust uh, and addiction and greed and lack of self-control and and, and self-centeredness and the sins of the flesh. Forgive us also for our elder brother, pride and arrogance, anger and resentment, bitterness, self-righteousness, superiority, judgmentalism. Help us, Lord, not to want you for the things we hope we can get from you but to want you, Lord Yeshua, just for you. You are the ultimate end and goal and purpose. We don't want to pursue you, Lord, just to get your blessings and a good life and our prayers answered. We want to pursue you for you. So melt our hearts, Lord. Help us to see serving you and living for you as a beauty, not a duty as an absolute beauty, just to delight in you, to be more like you, to delight you. Melt our hearts, Lord. Overwhelm us with your self-sacrificial love and bring us home. Bring us home to you, Yeshua. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom.